Welcome back to the Investing in the Go podcast brought to you by Fun Calibre. To mark the start of Chinese New Year, the year of the water rabbit, we're focusing our attention on Asian equity markets in this special bonus episode. Richard Sennett from Schroeder's joins us to explain what's gone wrong with Chinese equities, their future, and where he's finding income opportunities today in Asia. Throughout the interview, Richard discusses Asia from the perspective of an investor looking to generate income, and unless otherwise specified, all fund positioning will relate to the Schroeder Agent Income Fund. I'm Sam Slater from Fund Calibre, and today I've been joined by Richard Sennett, who manages the elite-rated Schroeder Asian Income Fund, Schroeder Asian Alpha Plus Fund, and the Schroeder Oriental Income Trust. Thank you for joining us today, Richard. Well, thank you very much for having me. So maybe we could start with China because Chinese New Year is just around the corner. Um, It's the biggest economy in the region. It's been previously billed as the world's engine for growth. But with underperforming markets in the last 12 months, what's gone wrong? Why has it performed so poorly? Um, yes, it's uh, it's certainly been a very tough year uh, for the Chinese markets, which um, uh, where China really has been under pressure, both not only from sort of cyclical reasons, but also structural ones. So, if you look at the last two years, um, we've seen an increased backdrop of regulation uh, uh, for a, a lot of the sort of private sector companies, um, and that's included uh, those names in the internet sector in particular. Um, and this is sort of increased focus on regulation and, and actually more of a sort of focus, I guess, on, on the sort of social um, uh, prosperity agenda has, has impacted uh, the potential returns of these uh, some of these companies in the eyes of the market, and that has seen some of these companies derate. Um, uh, at the same time, we've also seen uh, an increase in, in geopolitical tensions uh, around Taiwan and between the US, uh, US and China, which has also obviously depressed sentiment. Um, from a sort of cyclical perspective, so more shorter term, um, I think that um, one of the areas where there has been quite a slowdown has been in the property sector as has been sort of well documented. And, and because that makes up roughly sort of 25% of the economy, um, uh, um, that has obviously um, led to concerns that um, the economic growth uh, would continue to, to slow down. More recently, we've seen sort of um, some stimulatory measures on that front to try and um, improve the outlook for for the property sector. And um, certainly the, the sort of the chances of a, a tail risk event there have, have diminished in my view, although we would expect the, the property sector to remain relatively weak um, for, for, for some time. Um, the other, the other um, thing, of course, which has been much more topical more recently, has been um, the impact of uh, zero COVID uh, policy on the economy. Um, obviously, as Omicron sort of came to the fore at the beginning of last year, that zero COVID policy became harder and harder to enforce. And that resulted in, in a lot of um, lockdowns, which obviously impacted um, economic growth quite quite um, meaningfully and, and saw the markets um, under pressure again from that side of things. Um, so, so in short, yes, the, the year of the tiger was definitely a difficult year uh, for Chinese markets. Um, with all that in mind, what's your view on China today? And does that change the way you've positioned your funds at all? 
Um, well, the biggest change uh, we've seen over the last few weeks, uh, of course, has been, has been the rapid movement of um, opening opening up and away from zero COVID policy. Um, the speed at which this ha has occurred has been um, a surprise, I think, not only to us, but to, to many, uh, given how tightly sort of the zero COVID policy um, had managed been managed previous to that. And, and there's a still a quite a large, um, particularly as there was quite a large tranche of, of the elderly that weren't fully vaccinated. Um, we thought that, that perhaps the, the opening up would be uh, occur in a more staggered manner, um, given that. Um, still, the, the opening up of the uh, um, uh, opening up um, post-COVID is obviously helpful from an economic perspective, um, given the lockdowns and increased uncertainty that it all had on, on the market. Um, all that said, the market has moved um, uh, up very fast on the back of this. And whilst the market was um, arguably oversold at the end of October, valuations are not looking particularly attractive now, given given the rally that we've seen, um, particularly amongst the better quality companies and actually some of the opening up plays. Um, and these companies had actually held up relatively well through the downturn on, on opening up hopes. Um, Given all that, from the, from the sort of funds perspective, um, we we still have a sizable underweight to China, um, but in, in in part this has been offset by an overweight in in Hong Kong, where valuations um, still look relatively att attractive, and should benefit from any recovery in China. Um, action wise, we've been looking for ideas, um, uh, uh, looking for ideas to add to, and at the margin we have been doing that, and so we've added, for instance, um, into some of the of financial names. Um, but overall, we, we do still remain quite underweight from a combined Hong Kong-China perspective. Um, I think it's probably worth saying that from a, um, an income perspective, it is likely um, that we, we, we're going to be sort of underweight in a China from a China context, given, given that really quite a large chunk of the index there is made up of quite low yielding names, including um, a, a number of their sort of um, internet names, um, and, and so that tends to mean that uh, we we are underweight. And you mentioned the income perspective there. Looking at the Schroeder Asian Income Fund in particular, I mean it's consistently returned first and second quartile performance over most time periods. Has this been down to stock selection, or is it has the dividends, the reinvesting dividends, helped that? Yeah. Um... Well, I think you know the fund being an income fund um, definitely means that it does have uh, naturally a bit of a value bias, uh, given its uh, approach. Um, given income is obviously a, a value factor, uh, this does mean that over shorter time frames, um, which stars in favour can impact returns. Uh, so, for instance, growth was strongly in favour during 2020, and that was um, a headwind for the fund. But that largely unwound through 21 and 22, where value performed better, which was a which was a tailwind. As obviously um, interest rates rose, which impacted the more expensive sort of growth names within the, within the marketplace. Um, however, as you say, over the longer term, the fund has outperformed. Um, and, I, and I think uh, this is in large part down to our approach. Um, and that really is that we do believe that the Asian markets are inefficient. Um, 
uh, and the, the best way to extract those inefficiencies is through a bottom-up fundamental approach. Um, so what we don't do is just screen the, the universe for the highest yielding names and backfill the portfolio with um, with those stocks. Um, what we're trying to do is to look for names uh, or look for companies which have got upside to their fair value, um, but have uh, also got a, an income rationale uh, for going into the portfolio. And I think by focusing um, on the better quality names, that is those which in our view have got better management, better corporate uh, governance, uh, appropriate balance sheets for the businesses, uh, and have different, decent uh, market positions and uh, sustainable business models, um, we hopefully can add value over the longer term by applying this um, approach consistently. And the other powerhouse in the region, of course, is India. It's had a great last 12 months in particular. Um, but the Asian Income Fund doesn't actually have any exposure there at the moment. Is that because there's no income opportunities there or are valuations simply so high you don't think it's worth investing there? Yeah, you're right. We, do, we don't have any India at the moment. Um, and although we have done in the past, um, India... Um, it is generally a low yielding market so it yields roughly sort of one one and a half percent and what we tended to find is that the that the companies that do yield um, more than that are generally businesses that we don't like from a bottom-up perspective so it has meant that our exposure within the fund has been relatively small to India if, if we have anything at all all that said um, there are stocks which you know if they were at the right valuation we would be interested in looking to put into the fund so we do look at it at india as an opportunity for for income ideas um but at the moment you know we need to see a pullback in valuations in some of those areas and clearly the market has done well post covid um and has been implementing reform and that has seen uh, valuations actually get to quite full full levels um in the in the short term, so so yes, we like the longer term growth prospects, uh, but we'd want to see the market pull back before, uh, in particular names before adding there. And, and to give you some context, in our sort of non-income uh, portfolios, we have been taking some money out of of India um, selectively, and are now slightly underweight versus the, versus the index. For investors who are thinking about investing in Asia, but perhaps any sort of that push to actually do it, what would you say Asian markets give you that you can't get anywhere else? And what might the region offer in a wider portfolio? Yeah, I think for definitely from a sort of um, when you look at the the opportunity set of stocks, which is a, a very diverse set of of, of companies that. Um, isn't isn't always found in in markets such as the UK. So, you know, from an income perspective in particular, I think the Asian markets really can bring um, can help bring you diversification to, for anyone that's holding a lot of UK income, for instance. Um, and and that's because you know payouts are relatively low, balance sheets are quite lowly geared versus other regions. And for an income investor such as myself, the income is um, relatively well diversified. So. Um, um, to give you a feel for that, you know, roughly fifty uh, percent of the fifty uh, percent of the income uh, from from Asia comes from about thirty five companies. Whereas if you do the same sort of calculation for the UK, as you know, it's much more concentrated. It's much more like eight or nine. So there isn't that sort of, I suppose, 
stock-specific risk from an income perspective, which you can get um, in a more closely focused market. And the fact that you know payout ratios are relatively low and gearing um, uh, is also relatively low um, does provide some resilience, if you like, I think, to some of the dividends which come out of, um, which potentially c- uh, come out of the, the stocks across Asia. Um, I suppose the other thing that you get, you know, and I suppose sometimes it's a bit arguable of uh, as to, you know, the, the relationship between sort of GDP growth and, and sort of market returns. And, you know, whilst we could debate that, I think, you know, it's fair to say that the sort of Asian growth from an economic perspective, uh, you know, there is a higher growth um, growth rate um, that we're likely to see coming out of that region versus more developed areas of the world. And I think, you know, as a backdrop in which to sort of deliver dividends, that, you know, to me is a, you know, is a better backdrop than perhaps one where there is no growth uh, at all. So from from that perspective, I think you know it also um, has a has an advantage. We've discussed China and India. Are there any other countries or sectors that look really interesting to you today? Yeah, I'd say that North Asia, um, particularly some of the names in IT uh, sector in Korea and Taiwan um, look attractive at the moment. Um, these are obviously markets which have been sort of beaten down by uh, slowing um, global economy and, and um, weaker demand um, for, for stuff as people sort of came out of COVID and transferred spending more towards services and so on. Um, but given that that slowdown valuations have um, obviously come back quite a, quite a long way, and um, given this, I think the longer term attraction of some of these names within the, within the sector um, uh, is pretty high at the moment. I mean, we have some of the world's sort of best semiconductor companies and technology companies. They have generally high market shares in the markets that they they're operating in, and have uh, robust balance sheets. Um, so, so from that perspective, they're attractive. And given the sell-off that we've seen in these names, um, the valuations now are, are also pretty attractive, trading towards the lower end of their, their longer-term um, ranges. Um, and, it, you know, to give you an example, in Korea, for instance, um, the memory names have been sold off, um, as we've obviously seen this weakness in, in demand and inventories go up. But we're now starting to see cuts to um, the supply side. So production is starting to be cut and CapEx in some companies has been starting to cut. And we think that should bode well for um, for for the sector a, a, as a whole. And therefore, you know, I you know, remain overweight within the IT names. And just to wrap up, having sort of gone through that very generally, could you let us know what the current positioning of the fund is? Yeah, um, I guess from a country perspective, we sort of touched on some of that with regard to sort of underweight in China, and uh, you know being partially offset by by the overweight to Hong Kong. Um, but we also have quite a, an overweight in in Singapore, and there we um, we like the the, the banks uh, and um, also the, the telco name there, which looks particularly attractive to us from a valuation perspective. Um, but perhaps more interestingly. Um, if you were to look at it from a sector perspective, and if you took the sort of the three larger sectors in the the fund, so sort of financials, technology, and and real estate, um, 
we're, we're overweight financials um, and there we continue to like the banks that are sort of benefiting from rising rates um, uh, and the valuations still look reasonable versus their, their longer term history. And we think that their, you know, their ability to pay dividends is um, still remains pretty, pretty good. Um, um, we also, as mentioned, like the, the technology um, names in, in, in um, South Korea and, and Taiwan in particular so that leaves us overweight for, for for how i described earlier and then we also have an overweight in real estate um and now i should say that that's not in the sort of chinese private developers which were the area of the market which were uh, was the most um where people were most concerned about given the high leverage in some of the private developers there um we've we've obviously um our focus has been much more around the landlords, so the commercial property sector, um, including those in in Hong Kong uh, and to a less extent in China, but those it names in Hong Kong that do have exposure in into China as well. And these companies, to us, um, are trading at attractive discounts uh, to to their valuations, so to their longer term NAV, and actually have been improving their returns to shareholders, which we believe over the the longer term should allow. That discount to um, NAV to narrow, which um, is why we still think that they look attractive, um, and and so uh, so we continue to like that sector. Um, and then, if you look at sort of some of the other areas of the of the the, the market, we still don't um, really find much value amongst the defensive names. Um, because they tend to be relatively fully valued in our view. So here I'm thinking about sort of utilities where I don't have any exposure, sort of um, healthcare where I don't have any exposure, underweight sort of staples. Um, uh, although we do continue, or I do continue to like um, a number of the sort of telco names, which uh, uh, to, to me still look uh, uh, pretty attractive. That was a very thorough overview of the region and the fund. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you. The Schroeder Asian Income Fund gives equity investors access to the higher growth Asian economies, excluding Japan, but including Australia and New Zealand. It has been run by Richard Sennett since 2001 and invests in 60 to 80 companies, the majority of which are currently larger firms. Richard also runs the elite rated Schroeder Asian Alpha Plus Fund and Schroeder Oriental Income Trust. To learn more about any of these products, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only.